blood in the urine, hematuria, or more likely and probably more appropriately in our patient population, microhematuria. I mean, it's not all that rare, right? I mean, we order urine analysis frequently for patients with lower abdominal pain or pelvic pain. It's part of our workup, along with things like STI evaluation, physical exam, and when necessary, a pelvic ultrasound. So we get the UA, and what do we find? Microhematuria. Well, what do we do about that? Because it's kind of confusing because there's different guidelines that address this. But thankfully now, as part of the ABOG maintenance of certification, we actually have a nice article from the New England Journal of Medicine that helps explain this. So in this podcast session, we're going to cover hematuria and microhematuria, and we're going to take the stress off this really not rare condition. And above all, we're going to prepare you guys to take your MOC quiz at the end of the podcast. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Hematuria is divided into two main types, gross or visible hematuria, or the more likely in our patient population, microhematuria. Many patients are found to have microhematuria when a UA is performed for a variety of reasons. The American Urological Association, or the AUA, states a prevalence of microhematuria ranging from about 2% up to 31% in certain populations, like those queried in urology clinics. But here's something important to remember. The cause of hematuria and its significance, of course, differs between men and women. Given the association of both visible hematuria and microhematuria with bladder or renal cancer, the focus has traditionally been on the evaluation to rule out malignancy. However, remember that not all patients are the same, and their specific risk stratification actually matters. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, here's something to remember for the MOC. According to a registry of data on the global incidence of cancer called GloboCan, the incidence of kidney cancer or renal cancer for women is about 3.1 cases per 100,000 person years, while the incidence of bladder cancer for women is about 2.2 cases per 100,000 person years. Remember, that's worldwide data. So 3.1 per 100,000 person years for women for renal cancer and it drops down a little bit to 2.2 cases per 100,000 person years for bladder cancer. Now, for detection of hematuria, now, gross or visible hematuria is one thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in general, the detection of hematuria or microhematuria is by dipstick testing. Available dipstick tests detect red blood cells as well as hemoglobin and myoglobin. So it's important to remember that the next step after a dipstick test positive for hemoglobin or blood is to do a microscopic exam to see if that heme positive test is real or not. There are a lot of substances that can lead to a false positive dipstick reaction, like sodium hypochloride, peroxidases from vegetables that includes eating beets or rhubarb, and of course UTI sources or bacterial sources. Now on the false positive side, here's something interesting in our patient population, semen, yep, semen can actually lead to a false positive heme reaction on dipstick test. Now, in contrast, very high ascorbic acid levels, vitamin C levels, in the urine can produce false negative results. 
So the important thing is, if something tests positive for heme on dipstick, you got to go to the next step, and that's order a microscopic exam. Or, of course, we order a reflex UA. That micro is, of course, a spun specimen. The absence of red cells on micro exam of a heme-positive urine specimen suggests either that the red cells have all lysed, or it's isolated hemoglobinuria or myoglobinuria. So remember, heme-positive dipstick? Spin it. Because red cells will sediment down, leaving a clear supernatant, whereas myoglobin or free hemoglobin will not. So in all, the absence of red cells in the sediment of a heme-positive specimen suggests that either isolated hematuria or myoglobinuria may be present. Myoglobinuria can then be identified biochemically by other tests. Now that we've set that aside, let's take a look at what we actually mean by true hematuria. I mean, how many red cells are necessary for it to even fit that criteria? Well, true microhematuria is most often defined as more than two or three red cells per high-power field, but the finding needs to be confirmed on two or three separate UAs. If that is the working diagnosis, then look for other things, of course, in that sediment. Bacteria in the unspun urine and in the sediment suggest UTI, so that's easy to explain. Crystals may explain nephrolithiasis. So don't just stick with the hematuria. Look for other causes. And if there's no other identifiable cause, well, that's important, too. And we're going to discuss that as well. All right, team, so you've gotten the UA and it's heme positive on dipstick. So then you've ordered a spin urine or a micro and they do find red blood cells in that sediment. Hematuria is typically characterized by normal red cells. But if they're dysmorphic red cells, then the diagnostic evaluation should first focus on the possibility of a glomerulonephropathy. In other words, as those red blood cells transverse a messed up or an inflamed glomerulus, then they'll have altered shape. So remember, dysmorphic red blood cells, specifically red blood cell casts, you may want to remember that for the MOC, is a diagnostic red flag for the possibility of glomerulonephropathy. So that brings us to our most common causes of confirmed microhematuria. The most common causes of microhematuria are non-malignant, like glomerulonephropathies, predominantly IgA nephropathy or thin glomerular basement membrane disease, as well as inflammatory conditions like cystitis or urethritis. That's why it's important to spin it to look for bacteria and then send it for urine culture just as a backup. So remember, of course, the most common causes of microhematuria are non-malignant causes. Now, wait a minute. We do have to make a clarification here. Yes, most cases of microhematuria, thankfully, are benign, especially in the female population who's under 40. However, some are very uncomfortable saying it's just benign and don't worry about it. That's why microhematuria, that's not explained by another cause, meaning there's no bacteria, you don't think it's a stone, isolated microhematuria, you need to kind of follow that up. You should do another UA at least two or three times throughout the year just to make sure it's not persistent. And remember, according to the AUA, it's all about risk stratification, who needs further follow-up. And we're going to talk about this risk stratification in a minute because it's part of the MOC questions, but I don't want to get into that just yet. Just remember that most causes of microhematuria, thankfully, are benign.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, podcast family, remember that everything needs to be interpreted in terms of the patient's medical history. Because that's super important, right? I mean, if the patient has signs and symptoms of a UTI, then that's something that can explain hematuria. Is the patient menstruating? Because that could be a contaminant. Also, has she just recently exercised or engaged in sexual activity? Because all of those things can actually lead to microhematuria or at times even gross hematuria because it's myoglobinuria in the cases of extreme exercise. Of course, there's some things in the history that raise a relative risk of finding cancer as a diagnosis. Some of these high-risk history markers are things like age greater than 40, more than 25 red cells per high-power field, and being male. Also, the potential for exposure to occupational carcinogens, like some textile dyes, remember that, and also having pelvic irradiation or past chemo with alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide. All to say, pay attention to the patient's medical history because that could be telling in a lot of these cases. Now, here's a quick note about patient's history because this is kind of weird and counterintuitive. We're typically thought that cancer doesn't really hurt, right? I mean, if cancer hurt, then people would come in and they get early diagnosis. So cancer, usually painless, right? However, not the case so much for urinary tract malignancies, because according to the authors of this article, it said that dysuria is present in about 80% of patients with bladder cancer, and that dysuria doubles the likelihood of finding a bladder malignancy in the presence of hematuria. So that's weird. So remember, dysuria and hematuria, my first thing is that's a UTI, and, and that's fine, and it's fair to treat for that. But that's why we shouldn't just rely on that as a diagnosis, and it requires a repeat to make sure that that hematuria goes away. Okay, let's move on. We have been focusing on microhematuria, which is much more common in our patient population. But what about visible or gross hematuria? Now, there's no question that would freak out the patient uh, as well as the provider. But that's super important because visible hematuria most often has some obvious explanation. In other words, are they passing a kidney stone? That they have a sickle cell crisis? That they have major trauma? Are they post-op and they're having a post-op surgical complication? So it's important to look out for obvious causes first. But if there isn't one, in adults over the age of 40, and some sources suggest a cutoff of 35, an unexplained episode of visible or gross hematuria may signify cancer of either the bladder or upper urinary tract, and that needs urological referral and imaging. Most typically, that's cystoscopy and ultrasound. So let's talk about imaging next. Especially true for patients with gross hematuria, imaging is important. And it's also important for those who have persistent and repeat confirmed cases of microhematuria. Now, according to the authors of this manuscript and according to professional consensus opinion, the most cost-effective way to do imaging in these cases is a combination of cystoscopy and ultrasound. 
CT urography is not recommended as a baseline test because it's extra radiation and exposes the patient, of course, to contrast material. But if you're looking for a specific issue, like maybe a stone, then that's a different thing. But as part of baseline eval, stick with renal ultrasound and cystoscopy. And even MRI is not preferred. The use of magnetic resonance imaging is generally not recommended because it just doesn't really help. So remember, ultrasound plus cystoscopy detect the most cancers as the most cost-effective way rather than CT or MRI. And what about cytology? Well, current practice is to limit the use of urine cytology analysis to causes of gross hematuria or symptomatic hematuria, but it's not part of routine evaluation. So if you're going to order cytology, it's really only for gross hematuria or symptomatic hematuria with no other cause. Well, as we come to the end of the podcast, two things that we have to cover before we leave. First is the risk stratification of patients for the risk of bladder cancer, because finding out if they're low risk, intermediate, or high risk will help determine the follow-up and possible referral for more evaluation. And then the second thing to cover is screening recommendations. Is it part of policy guidelines or recommendations to screen for hematuria? All right, risk stratification. This comes from the AUA guidelines, which were updated in 2020, which places the patients based on risk categories. Low risk includes all of the following. Now, remember, all criteria must be met to call the patient low risk for bladder malignancy. That has to be less than 50 years of age for women. They should have never smoked or smoked less than 10 pack years. They have to have no more than 3 to 10 max red blood cells per high power field on one UA, and they have to have no other risk factors for uroepithelial malignancy. Do you get that? So age less than 50, never smoked or less than 10 pack year, 3 to 10 red cells per high power field on one UA, and no additional risk factors for uroepithelial cancer. If all of those are met, the patient is low risk. Intermediate risk includes any one of the following being present. Again, it's not a combination of things, but any one of these makes the patient intermediate risk. And that's age between 40 and 59 years for both men and women, 10 to 30 pack year smoking. Red blood cells on high power field, that's between 11 to 25. So we've gone up from the 3 to 10 of low risk and any additional risk factor for uropathelial cancer. Any one of those makes the patient intermediate risk. And for high risk, any one of these places the patient at high risk of bladder malignancy. That's having hematuria or microhematuria greater than 60 years of age in both men and women, greater than a 30-pack year of smoking, greater than 25 red cells per high-power field, or any history of gross hematuria. So age more than 60, more than 30-pack year smoking, more than 25 RBCs, or a history of gross hematuria places the patient at high risk. And as we wrap up the podcast, a quick guidance about screening. You may want to remember this for the MOC. The American College of Physicians has stated back in 2016 that asymptomatic adults as a group should not be screened with a UA for cancer detection. And for those that nonetheless are screened and found to have a positive dipstick test, well, then you need to go and follow that up with microscopic urine analysis. The U.S. Preventive Service Task Force does not recommend screening for microhematuria, citing inadequate evidence of benefits versus harms. That brings us to a wrap. 
podcast family, we have covered an article from the New England Journal of Medicine whose title is Hematuria in Adults. This is part of the MOC ABOG reading list for the first quarter of 2022. As always, thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thank you.